First Sunday of Lent, huh? Did you realize that? We had Ash Wednesday last Wednesday, and then the Sunday before last week, we were kind of resetting the stage with Lent. Many of us have grown up in a liturgical church, whether it's Catholic or Presbyterian, Lutheran, High Methodist, whatever, and we had learned something about Lent. We know something about Lent. And I don't know about you all, but when I was taught about Lent as a child growing up in the Catholic Church, it was all about deprivation. It was all about giving something up as a penance for our sins. And so it was kind of dark, it was kind of negative, it was kind of passive, because we were just giving up stuff. Typically it was candy bars for me. I'd give up candy bars. That was what I would give up. you know. And, uh, and then somehow... God was going to reward me. Somehow it was all going to come back. Something, I guess, was going to happen. Or it was just payment for being a bad boy. And that was what I learned about Lent when I was small. Right or wrong, whatever the church believed about it, that was the message that came across. And guess what? Those messages that get planted in us as children, they don't just go away when you grow up, do they? They stay in there. And so the notion of Lent has always been kind of dark, negative, passive, and not a whole heck of a lot of fun. What we're trying to do is say, look, Lent was based first on a 40-ness. And we talked about 40 last week. The fact that 40 is a symbolic number to the Jews, to the Hebrews. It means a time of trial and testing into rebirth. So you see 40s all over the place, especially in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. You know, Moses and Noah and and, uh, Elijah all had 40s where they were in a place of real challenge, real trial and testing, into a place of rebirth. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness. He spends 40 hours in the tomb between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And he spends 40 days on the earth in the resurrected state. And so there's these 40s, and they always are representing the same thing. And so this period of 40 was used as a preparation for baptism in the early church. If you wanted to be baptized in the church, you spent a time, a 40-ness, a time of this preparation for new life, for rebirth on the other side. And so it was natural then to put that 40-ness before Easter as well and say this is the ultimate expression liturgically in the church of new life, Jesus rising from the dead. And so we can prepare with a 40-ness before that. And so as we look at that model and say, what Lent is modeled on is Jesus' time in the wilderness. What was Jesus doing in the wilderness? What was happening in the wilderness? Well, certainly he was fasting. Certainly he was depriving himself. Certainly he left home, he left hearth, he left family, he left career, job, and everything he had to go out into a place that was not all that stuff. Taking that temperature, taking that volume down going into a place where he could find silence, where he could find stillness. And I always like to put Jesus back into some kind of contemporary frame because sometimes we look at Jesus as so other, we forget the humanness and the the consequences of what he actually did. Can you imagine him going up to mom? Can you imagine you going up to mom as the eldest in the family with the father gone? You're the head of the household. You're the head of the family business. And say, mom... Uh, I've got my affairs all in order, but I'm leaving for the desert, and I don't know when I'll be back. What do you think mom's reaction is going to be? What do you think the sibling's reaction is going to be? What do you think your friend's reaction are going to be in the extended family, in the entire village? And these were difficult things. And it was no less difficult for Jesus because he lived 2,000 years ago. People are people. People are the same. 
We're all the same, just like in Cheers, that song. You know, we're all the same. The only thing that separates us is technology. But this had nothing to do with technology. This had to do with Jesus being driven by the Spirit, being so from the inside out, needing to find out what was true, that he needed to clear the decks. He needed to clear the space in order to be able to do that, to get down to the bottom of that dog pile and find out what was really going on, what this relationship with his father was really about. It began in his religious training, but it had to end someplace else for him. And so this is what's going on. So can we now take a look at Lent from that point of view and say, yes, Lent is a time of fasting, possibly, if you want to use that tool. Lent is a time of deprivation, of, of clearing things out, but not as penance for sin, necessarily. It's to be able to see more clearly, to grant, to grant yourself an awareness of what is really true in your life. So we're going to take down the distractions. It moves from a passive and a negative to a positive, affirmative action that we're going to take in our lives to try to take down the noise, clear out all the stuff so that we can start to prepare ourselves for new life and what that really means. And we may only discover what it really means in the doing of this as well. Last week we talked about the technique of mindfulness, that that was one way that we could do this. You had handouts of six mindfulness exercises. I encouraged you to go through those on a daily basis, pick one and try it. See how it works. Pick another one. Go through it. Daily try something and find out what tools work for you. Find out what techniques work for you. Find out how you can bring yourself back to clear out all the noise on a daily basis. And if you weren't here last week and you didn't get one of the handouts, there's more out there on the tables this morning. Because encouraging you, use this time, use this Lenten season to see what you can do to move yourself into a new place, to really clear things out. What is distracting? What is awareness dissipating? You know, What can we take out of our lives that does those things to us? And if you really look at it, isn't it technology mostly that is distracting, that is awareness dissipating? You know, TV, social media, internet, phones, video games, your car radio. TV in the background. Some of us have TV going on in the background all the time just for companion noise or music going on. There's a constant noise level. There's a constant distraction. How much time do you spend on your phone? How much time are you tied to that instrument? Is it always with you? If it's not ringing, are you looking up social media? If you're not doing that, are you looking on Internet? I mean, how much time do we spend doing all of these things? You know, what if we, in the season of Lent, just limited our tech time, just carved out some space where all technology goes silent, all the blinking lights go out, and we have time to do something completely different? What if we, as we're driving around, turned off the car radio, stopped listening to, to talk radio and all the stuff? You know, when you spend time listening to talk radio, reading on social media, do you ever feel really edified? Do you ever feel like you really learned something that you needed to know? Because so much of it is just noise. So much of it is just stuff that takes our attention away, dissipates it, dilutes it, and doesn't give us anything back. You know? 
What can we turn off? Now that would be something better than giving up a candy bar. Because it's not an end in itself. There's a purpose to it. The things that we let go are going to give us, hopefully, a sense of awareness, a sense of presence. You know, giving up something like that would be a real use of Lent. And then what are we going to fill it with? We take that time, we take those things away, we open up a space, what are we going to put in there? Well, the mindfulness exercises would be a great thing to do. That's what we were talking about. Quiet time, just quiet time. Mindful activity. Doing what you need to do, but doing it mindfully. I love that line from Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, the Vietnamese uh, monk, and he says, when you wash the dishes, really wash the dishes, you know? Don't do it as you know, a means to another end, but do it for itself. What does it feel like? You know, what's the viscosity and the, the, the quality of the soap? And, and what does it feel as you go through all the motions? What's going on around you as you do that? Can we take our activities, turn off the noise, and do those things mindfully? Because that becomes sacred space as well, if we can do that. The most insignificant task that you do becomes a prayer if it's done under those kind of circumstances. I remember, oh, I hate to say how long ago it's been getting, 30 years ago, um, I was living alone, I was living in an apartment, and I wanted to be Thomas Merton. You know, I wanted to be that, that lay monk. And so I shut everything down. When I was driving, the car radio was off. When I was home, everything was silent. I kept silence where I could, you know, at 8 o'clock when the phone started ringing and I had to go to work and do that, okay, I did that. But every other time I was keeping it quiet. That was a little extreme. You know, I was under a media rock. I never knew what was going on. But it was a time for really working that out. We fear silence. Yeah. Isn't that uncomfortable? Yeah, see? We've got to fill it. You know, if there's too much silence, we've got to fill it. Time between songs. Oh, you know, someone's got to step in there. You know, we, we always want to fill the silence. We fear stillness. Got to fill it with some kind of activity. We can't just be silent. We can't just be still. Something has to happen. You know, today what I want to do is pull images from the Holy Week readings. And we'll do that over the next few Sundays as well. Holy Week each day has a reading, has a, a story, a part of the Holy Week connected to it. And what I wanted to do was pull from Palm Sunday today and, and the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem triumphantly. And we're going to hit it again, of course, on Palm Sunday, but this is just going to be a, a kind of a glancing blow. And um, here, how, do we, how do we do this? Let's see. Um, let's go to... There it is. Luke 19, verse 37. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples came to, began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent... Even the stones will cry out. What is Jesus talking about? The stones will cry out. And how in the world are we going to hear stones crying out when everything is going by at 60 miles an hour, just racing past our windshields? Marion sent me an article um, just a few days ago, and it was about 
parenting and it was about you know dealing with certain issues and it's amazing i read this thing and one part really stood out for me and i wanted to use it today and i couldn't get back don't you hate that you can't find the email that came in and the link so i just went online i found another one that captures the same sort of idea and i want to read this to you because it really started to reframe something for me and i hope it does for you too and it's talking about handling boredom why it's good for your child boredom good for your child What's going on here? Mom, Dad, I'm bored. How many parents have heard that? And what do you normally do? It makes you feel put on the spot, right? You might even feel like you're a bad parent, right? Most of us are pressured to solve this problem right away. We usually respond to our kids' boredom by providing technological entertainment or structured activities. But that's actually counterproductive. Children need to encounter and engage with the raw stuff that life is made of unstructured time. Have you ever thought of life that way? Life is nothing but unstructured time. Now, we put the grid on it, we put the schedules on it, we put the calendars on it, but really, what is it? It's unstructured time. If you don't believe that, ask your dog. How do you think your dog experiences life? Unstructured time, you know? The sun comes up, the sun goes down. He doesn't even probably realize that. It's just light and then it's dark. The bowl's out, the bowl's not out. Unstructured time. Really, that's what we've got to work with. And children of a certain age, that's what they've got to work with as well, right? One of our biggest challenges as adults and even as teenagers is learning to manage our time well. So it's essential for children to have the experience of deciding for themselves how to use periods of unstructured time or they'll never learn how to manage it. Maybe even more important, unstructured time gives children the opportunity to explore their inner and outer worlds, which is the beginning of creativity. This is how they learn to engage with themselves in the world, to imagine and invent and create. Unstructured time also challenges children to explore their own passions. If we keep them busy with lessons and structured activity, or they fill their time with screen entertainment, They never learn to respond to the stirrings of their own hearts, which might lead them to build a fort in the backyard or make a monster from clay, write a short story or a song, organize the neighborhood kids into making a movie, or simply study the bugs on the sidewalk, as Einstein reportedly did for hours. These calls from our heart are what lead us to those passions that make life meaningful, and they are available to us beginning in childhood but only when children are given free reign to explore and pursue where their interests lead them. In other words, boredom is a time when all the other distractions have been stripped away, and we perceive it as a negative because we're so accustomed to constant input, constant flow of data coming back through. But rather than see it as a negative, it's actually an opportunity to begin to hear the stones singing around us. As Nancy Blakely said, I cannot plant imagination into my children. I can, however, provide an environment where their creativity is not just another mess to clean up, but welcome evidence of grappling successfully with boredom. It is possible for boredom to deliver us to our best selves, the ones that long for risk and illumination and unspeakable beauty. If we sit still long enough, we may hear the call behind the boredom. With practice, we may have the imagination to rise up from the emptiness and answer. You want to hear the stones singing? 
then what if you turned off the car radio? What if you turned off the TV in the background? What if we limited that tech time, the TV, the internet, the smartphone, and actually create boredom, silence, stillness for periods in our day? What if we actually did that? Then this giving up something for Lent actually has purpose. It actually has meaning. And we can fill that story. We can fill that time. And so here's Jesus in the midst of frenetic activity as he comes into Jerusalem, right? And he's talking about the stones will cry out if these remain silent. That there is a music that is being played in all of creation. That all of creation is constantly testifying to the truth in some way. But we will miss it if we aren't paying attention. We'll miss it if we're not really aware. Now this is going to go a little bit outside, but I do that from time to time, most of you know. Did you know that the heavens themselves, the cosmos themselves, the universe itself is playing music? Astronomers have been figuring this out for the last few decades. And just a little clip, the music of the heavens turns out to sound a lot like B-flat. This is the name of this article. Astronomers say they have heard the sound of a black hole singing. And what is it singing? And perhaps has been singing for more than two billion years? They say it's (laughs) B-flat. A B-flat 57 octaves lower than middle C. And if you don't know middle C, I mean, that's down there. The notes appear as pressure waves roiling and spreading as a result of outbursts from a supermassive black hole through a hot, thin gas that fills the Perseus cluster of galaxies 250 million light-years distant. They are 30,000 light-years across and have a period of oscillation, get this, of 10 million years. And that may not mean something right off, but by comparison, the deepest and lowest notes that humans can hear with their ears have a period of about one-twentieth of a second. All right? So here's the thing. We can hear tones that are oscillating from trough to trough or crest to crest, if you look at a sine wave, 20 times a second. Now, when Vernon plays the lowest note that he can play on his bass, if he brings his five-string bass and has a low B string on it, it's about 31 hertz. That means it's oscillating 31 times a second. The lowest note on a piano, the low A, is about 25 hertz. And so that's oscillating 25 times a second. This thing from the black hole is oscillating once every 10 million years. It it just, I mean, you can't even get your head around this. The black hole is playing the lowest note in the universe. No kidding, said Andrew Fabian, an X-ray astronomer at the Institute for Astronomy at Cambridge University in England. There's also microwave background. There is electromagnetic energy that's coming out of certain clusters and nebula. And all of this stuff is and has been converted into sound waves. And you can just go on the internet, just go onto YouTube and, and just, just type in music of the universe and you can hear this stuff. It's incredible. Some of it actually has harmony, you know? There's chordal things going on. And, and it's, it's boring, but it's music, you know? But it's boring. That's not a bad thing anymore if we start to look at it this way. Now, I don't know that Jesus was getting this technical when he made this comment, of course. But the point is that there is something hardwired into our universe that our scientists are starting to figure out. There is a music. The stones are literally crying out. They are singing. 
They are constantly testifying to the truth. And the truth is what? There is order. There is harmony. There is unity at the core of all this. All this that we can see and smell and measure with our instruments came from unity, came from harmony, came from order, came from love. We can extrapolate from that. And it's all there. And even if we don't recognize it, if we're not aware of it, if we're not adding to the chorus, it's still there. And that's, I suppose, the question. Are we going to add ourselves to the chorus? Are we going to move into this, this unceasing music, this expression of truth? How do we do that? How can we listen to this unceasing expression of truth that is occurring all around us? Well, Paul calls it prayer in Thessalonians. He calls it unceasing prayer. And let's just take a look at the way he puts it here at Thessalonians 5, starting at verse 16. He says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Okay, unceasing prayer. It's got to be a different kind of prayer. We can't go around mumbling to ourselves all day long or we're not going to have jobs very long. All right? We can't go around thinking prayer all the time. All right? It's not about making more noise. It's about increasing awareness. This is where he's going. And notice, Paul doesn't give us one directive. He gives us three directives. And I believe that the context of those three directives that he's giving us is really defining what he means by prayer and defining for us how we can move into a place this Lent and for the rest of our lives that's going to allow us to hear the rocks singing as Jesus is talking about. There is a, a monastery that was, uh, I think they're, they're getting to be 40 years old or, or something in that neighborhood uh, in up, upstate New York called New Skeety. And the monks of New Skeety have written several books. You might have, especially if you're a dog lover, they wrote dog books because that's what they were doing there. They were raising German shepherds, and so they wrote you know, breeding books and how to care for German shepherd books, and those are bestsellers. Well, they another, wrote another book called In Search of Happiness, and this is more about their actual monastic community and how they approach life and contemplative life and so on and so forth. And um, I just thought it was a, a great way of looking at prayer that they brought up here. And let's see if I can arrange all these pieces of paper. They take a look at this saying of Paul and they break it down. And it's in your inserts if you want to follow along. First, Paul says, be happy always. Greet everyone and everything openly and cheerfully, even in adversity. Sing together joyfully. Pray without ceasing. Don't forget to pray. Be open to God's presence. Don't stop praying together just because difficulties arise or when everything's fine. Pay attention and avoid distractions. Be grateful in all circumstances. Paul's third directive. Be generous and appreciative. Find something positive, even during reversals and setbacks. Display your unity and heal your divisions by giving thanks in prayer and in Eucharist. For this is the will of God for you in Jesus Christ. So, Paul isn't just recommending a basic prescription. Much more profoundly, he's exhorting his readers to an attitude, a frame of mind, a way of being that's outgoing no matter how discouraged they might happen to be. Habitual, unfailing spirit of joyful openness. Being consciously 
and constantly conscious of the presence of God amidst the changing complexion of everyday life. The rocks are singing. This is what unceasing prayer means. Not saying prayers continuously. As we grow up, we learn to respond creatively with faithful trust in the presence of God in the most difficult of human circumstances, tragedies, disagreements, even moments of ennui. Don't you love that word, ennui? It means boredom. We're back to boredom again. It's okay. Boredom is the new excitement. (laughs) All right. We'll manifest a constant prayerful direction that doesn't flinch in the face of doubt, darkness, despair, and even death. A constant, persistent, and pervasive attitude of prayer is precisely what the Psalms demonstrate for us. Don't you love that? Constant, persistent, pervasive. The Psalms can do this, in part, because of their simple humanity, their direct response to every human situation imaginable. Believers as well as unbelievers instinctively relate to the concrete situations these hymns describe and interpret. If we read them with an open and attentive mind, their striking and colorful words can help us to understand the essence of Scripture, what loving God actually means. Before all else, it means offering the whole of our experience to him. Now, offering the whole of our experience to him, that doesn't mean a whole lot to me. It's kind of church jargon. I've, I've heard that before. But how about this? Instead of offering all our experience, how about sharing our experience? How about seeing purpose in all our experience? How about not holding back or resisting in all our experience? Taking that whole of our experience to God in that way, sharing, immersing, holding nothing back, joy, sadness, anger, suffering, desires, frustrations, hiding nothing from him, even our deepest thoughts, this is what prayer is. This kind of fearlessly vulnerable, transparent connection. That's what prayer is. The Psalms reveal the innermost disposition, drama, and dynamism of prayer in those who live in communion with God through the turbulence of everyday life, who in spite of this turbulence strive to do everything in a manner that pleases God. Okay, there's another one of those churchy things. Pleasing God, what does that mean? Less legally, it means in oneness with God. It means being so connected to God's will, understood as pleasure and desire and deepest purpose, that there is no daylight between the two of you. That's pleasing God. It's simply being pleased by what God is pleased by as well. So that we're free to do whatever we do, but whatever we do looks like God looks like law, because we have been transformed from the inside out. Because they bring God into every nook and cranny of human existence, those who pray in this way, even the most disturbing of those moments. The Psalms educate our hearts, converting us, teaching us how to live, experience after experience, in a a perennial climate of prayerfulness. So, understood this way, unceasing prayer, prayer at all, is engaging our whole experience of life. But in this awareness of well-being, because when we engage in the moment and we clear out all that stuff that we're constantly worried about, anxious about, judging about, why did Jesus tell us not to do that stuff, right? Don't judge. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't take thought. Clear that out, because when you do, the moment is pretty good. Like that moment when we were playing that last song. 
right? It was a pretty good moment. For that moment, everything was okay. It felt okay. Yeah, all that stuff's waiting for you outside the door, but right now, it's okay. And when you do walk out that door and that stuff hits you again and you need to deal with it, you can still be okay if you lean into it and that experience, even of the difficulty, becomes another transparent, fearlessly vulnerable connection point with each other and with God's Spirit unseen. Just the participation in these moments is what does it. That's what takes us there. You know? When you have a moment and you feel that smile spreading across your face, you know the moment I'm talking about? <laughs> it just happens without your permission. There's that smile. You know? What makes you smile makes you pray. If you're aware of it, if you will let it, if that's okay. Friday afternoon, I came in here and went into the, the office in the back, and I finally had a few hours to spend. You, you know that uh, our, our friend and co-founder, Bubba Beecham, died on the 16th of January, and his um, celebration, his uh, memorial service, is next Saturday. And of course, you're all invited. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to do, three years ago, Bubba had given a message here at our old location at The Effect. and It was 35, 40 minutes long, and I wanted to sit down and see if I could distill that down into a short clip that we could play at the memorial service, and the family thought that would be a pretty good idea. So there I am sitting in that room back there with my headphones on, just filled with Bubba's voice. And if you know Bubba's voice, it is the most unmistakable, most unique voice. And he's this close. I mean, it's as if his lips were right at my ears, just talking to me. It was transfixing for me. It didn't make me grieve. It just made me feel so present to him. I was remembering the day. I was remembering sitting in the front row and watching him deliver the message. I was following all of his references. And then another part of my brain was listening for the good bits and then writing down the, you know, the marker numbers so that I could go back to them and do the editing that I needed to do. But here I was just in that space with him, recorded and missing my friend, but just not feeling that bad about it, feeling okay. And then as I started actually going to the good bits and stringing them together and hearing what it was he was saying, it was all what we're talking about here. For Bubba, church, his cathedral, was that shoreline. Where he lived, he talked about the pelicans that would fly across. He talked about the waves that were coming in as they had for thousands of years, and he got to watch them. He talked about taking his parrot, Simon, out onto the, the, the edge of the cliff, and Simon would pretend to fly, you know, because his wings are clipped, but he'd pretend to fly. And, and he'd talk, and Bubba would talk. He talked about watching the kids on the beach um, down below. He talked about being at the river. He talked about all of these moments as being a time when he walked lockstep with God. And if you ever saw Bubba smile, you know that he meant it. That was who he was. Bubba was able to take those moments that made him smile and see and find God in it. And they became prayers. They became a form of unceasing prayer for him. Yes, he had his hard times and, you know, we talked about those as well. But he strung those moments together and he understood where to look for truth 
Bubba could hear the rocks singing. It's, it's hard to make it any clearer than that. You know, Marion, I love the fact that she loves the birds in our backyard. She feeds the birds in our backyard. She goes out and buys these little socks full of seed and she hangs them up. And then if they don't find it, then she hangs it someplace else. And when they are all clustering around, she's smiling. You know, we're both smiling. We have this fountain that we inherited when we moved in there. And when the birds come in and they bathe and they drink, it's like smiles. When the hummingbirds come by, bigger smiles because those are just amazing creatures. Can you just smile at the tiniest little things? Have you got a dog at home? Just watch your dog. They do the weirdest things. They make you smile. You got kids at home. They do even weirder things. You know, can you smile at that or are you annoyed all the time? I mean, look at these things. Look at, look at what's going on around you. The things that make us smile make us pray if we will just let them do so. So does that mean we have to wait for these things to happen in front of us so that we can pray? If that's the case, then how in the world do we get to this place of unceasing prayer that Paul is talking about? There's got to be a way for us to be able to strip away the distractions so that we can see these things on a more regular basis where we take an actual approach to this. And this is what I think he's talking about here. This is where the balance comes in between immersion in the moment and a disciplined structure that we impose on moments. We've talked about meditation here that's offline and online. The offline is where we set aside a time, a half an hour, an hour, and we go into our prayer closets and we get really quiet and we get really still. That's offline. But then there's also online. That's the mindfulness that occurs all throughout the day using techniques we learned and have honed offline and we bring them online so that we have this unceasing kind of awareness. There's a balance that has to happen between mindfulness and set times of formal prayer both personal and corporate. And there's a centering prayer handout in your, in your bulletins today. That's something that you can use for offline. The mindfulness that you got last week or may pick up today, online. Two different ways of being able to find this balance. And Jesus exemplifies this balance in his life. Let's go back to uh, the book. Jesus himself, as a first century Jew, was raised in this same spirit of prayer as the Gospels show us. His life opens up for us the meaning of unceasing prayer. Jesus knew the value of both liturgical prayer, formal prayer, and private prayer. But he hardly walked around mumbling prayers all the time. Like the prophets, he openly criticizes those who multiply their prayers instead of fostering the requisite interior attitude. And at Matthew 6, 5, which is in your inserts are up on the screen. And then when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the play actors. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners so that people may see them at it. Believe me, they have had their reward in full and all they're going to get. But when you pray, go into your own room, shut your door, and pray to your father privately. Your father who sees all private things will reward you. And when you pray, don't rattle off long prayers like the pagans who think that they will be heard because they use so many words. Don't be like them. After all, God, who is your Father, knows your needs before you ask him. Jesus is the one in whom we see the integration, the balance of the inner and the outer, the sacred and the secular. While teaching the importance of both formal liturgical participation in church situations and prayer in solitude, 
He demonstrates that the scope of his spirit of prayer extends far beyond these to embrace the whole of his daily experience. Amidst the demands of his public ministry, Jesus is perpetually prayerful in a manner appropriate to whatever life brings before him. His whole life is a prayer because he is always conscious of the Heavenly Father in whose presence he lives. He is never not praying. Yet most people observing him might never have suspected this at all. Through the contents of his everyday life, he becomes prayer, though in a manner entirely in harmony with his human nature. Every act and gesture, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is a movement of adoration, an offering of prayer. Our human reality is what we bring to God, our very means to God. And if, like Jesus, we are to become a living prayer, it cannot be in a purely quantitative way, not just numbers here, by futilely multiplying prayers upon prayer for the rest of our lives. We can only be faithful to the mandate to unceasing prayer when we seek it qualitatively, by reverently listening and discerning the presence of God in every situation in life, by confronting our hearts and minds and behavior with the words and attitudes we articulate in prayer, and by embracing our whole life and presenting it as a gift to God. Now, this life of prayer usually starts in community, right? It's easier in a group. It's easier in a group with like minds all around us to be able to do this. Any of you ever bicycled in a group before? All right? You know that it's easier if you draft after the person right in front of you. So they're getting all the wind resistance, and you kind of you know, hunker down in their shadow, you know, just put your, your front tire right off their back tire and you can, in fact, that's what you do when you're, when you're racing in groups. The lead person is taking the brunt of it and when they start to tire, then they change positions and the next person takes the lead and the other person drafts and so on and so forth so that you can move through. It's like that here. You know, a lot of times people say, yeah, you don't need church. Church is a bunch of hypocrites anyway. It's all corrupt anyway from the Vatican down. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a corrupt thing. We don't need church. You know, the world is our church. Well, there's a certain amount of truth to that. But you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The, the, the truth of the matter is we do need each other. We do need this community. We need community and accountability. We need structure and discipline and service. Where are you going to get that? Well, if you're not getting it here, are you getting it someplace else? Are you getting it at work? Are you getting it at home? Are you getting it in a 12-step group? Where are you getting that? Because if you don't have those things, then your chip on your shoulder about church is probably an excuse for having no structure or discipline at all. And if we don't have the structure and discipline, we can't have the balance that we're talking about here. We can have moments, but we aren't really cultivating our ability at will in the most difficult of circumstances to be able to get back to that place where we can hear the rocks singing. And that's what this is all about. This is what Jesus is trying to bring us back to. Have you been to a retreat? Weekend retreat, any of you? Okay. And you know that you go up to the mountain or you go out to the desert or you do whatever you do and you feel that regeneration and you feel that awareness and it just feels so great and you think, this is a new start for the rest of my life. And then you go back down the hill and by Wednesday, you're feeling just the same again. Everything is dissipated. Why? Because up on the mountain, out in the desert, there was a structure and there was a focus. There was an intensity 
that you were part of, that took you someplace. And when you came back down the hill, all of that was gone and you went back to having the TV on all the time and listening to talk radio in your car and being dissipated. Nothing wrong with TV and talk radio. But if we're always in that mode, then we're never going to be able to hear the rocks singing. We need the structure. We need the discipline to be able to do this. How can we create structure? How can we create this discipline for ourselves between formal times of prayer? Last passage I want to read from the new monks at Skidi. And this is in the form of a dialogue. They have a seeker. They call him the seeker. He was a, a, a person who was coming up to the monastery to see if he was going to join the order or not. And the seeker is talking to one of the uh, spiritual directors, and he remembers asking Father Lawrence one day, Abba, they call him Abba, their Eastern Orthodox sect. Abba, when we last talked, we were talking about St. Paul's injunction to pray without ceasing, but to be honest, I'm stymied. How's one supposed to do that? When I try to pray always, I'm doing the very thing you say we shouldn't do, which is attempting to repeat verbal prayers. Then when I don't say prayers, I feel like I'm not praying at all. What can I do about this? That's a paradox, all right. But it's really not the impossibility you're suggesting. What we're really looking for is to live in a state of prayer. A state of prayer? That's right. Being in a state of prayer involves living in such a manner that regardless of what we might be doing, we're also always praying. Yes, but what do you mean by that? How do I get to that? Well, for starters, and this has nothing to do with feelings, it's a question of awareness, something that's present regardless of what we're feeling. But it would also seem to require more than that. What makes all the difference, I believe, is the intention to please God. Again, attention, an intention to be pleased by what God is pleased by. In addition to the consciousness of being in God's presence, were we to have the constant willingness always and everywhere to do what is pleasing to God, then such an attitude would constitute a state of prayerfulness. Yeah, but I still don't see how that translates into actual practice. I mean, my problem is that when I'm busy living, I seem to forget God's presence. Then when I try to change that, it seems to take me in the direction of saying prayers all the time, like repeating the Jesus prayer. You have to remember that the state of being I'm talking about has nothing to directly to do with an act, has nothing directly to do with an act. For example, simply uttering a series of prayer doesn't constitute a state of prayerfulness. Your mind could be a million miles away. Prayerfulness is a condition we bring about in ourselves that is the correct climate for any individual acts of prayer. And in fact, for everything else we do, this can seem subtle, but it's not just word games. It means recognizing that we're not always thinking about everything that we're conscious of. Take yourself right now. You know you have two feet, but you weren't actually thinking about them before I mentioned them. In a similar way, we can become increasingly conscious of being in God's presence in spite of the fact that we're not always thinking about him. We need to really understand this. Awareness is not thinking about something, right? You're having a conversation with something with somebody. You know, you're hearing the words, you're immersed in the conversation, but that interior monologue is not going on. If it is, then you're no longer really in the conversation. You're listening to yourself instead of them. You're watching a beautiful sunset. You don't have a running commentary like Vince Scully going on. Okay, the sun is just a millimeter above the horizon now and it's turning this beautiful color. No, 
You're just there. And if you do start thinking that way, then you've left the building again. We can be aware of something without thinking about it. It's this pure presence we're talking about. So we need to understand we don't have to have the monologue to be aware of. It's, it's more about intent. It's more about focus. It's more about immersion. It's what he's trying to get across here. We will think, but we will still think of God often, nevertheless. And the more we do think of him, the more likely we'll also become aware of how we should be better conducting our lives. A very good way to do this is by consciously associating elements of our daily experience with the presence of God, allowing them to remind us of it. When we do this over time, they not only sustain our consciousness of being in God's presence, but actually strengthen our determination to live in a way that pleases God. For example, let's say somebody works in an office where the phone calls come in rapidly, one after another, right? What if this person were able to associate each ring of the phone with being conscious in God's presence, being conscious of being in God's presence? Now, initially, this will obviously require deliberate work on their part, but as they persevere in doing it, the practice will become more and more a habit. And eventually, every time the phone rings, or any bell for that matter, they'll be reminded of being in God's presence. My mind goes to, every time a bell's ring, an angel gets his wings, right? In the context of a busy office where phones ring frequently, being and remaining in God's presence will gradually become the habitual state that the person lives in and which spurs him or her to always give their best and which in no way interferes with the work. In a way, the process can be likened to repeatedly placing a drop of red ink into a pail of clear water. At first, the red color won't be perceptible, but over time, should the process continue, the steady addition of drops will change the color of the clear water to red. And in fact, the point will come in which there won't be a perceptible distinction between the water in the pail and the ink in the container. The way in which we mindfully and deliberately form the habit of being conscious of being in the presence of God, the way it gradually begins to color our whole life, is a process much like that. And so, if in the course of consciously building this habit of being in the presence of God, we add as well the habitual intention of pleasing God in all things, then no matter what we might be doing or thinking about, it becomes an act of prayer, simply because we're performing these acts in a prayerful state. Unceasing prayer, the prayer that Paul is talking about, is awareness that is gradually built up over time. It's actually kind of snuck upon. You know, you just keep showing up to the moments. You keep intending to be present, to be mindful, to be aware. You show up to your formal times, your quiet times, your prayer closet times, with intention to just be quiet and present and aware. You show up to groups like this with the intention of really being here to let that music wash over you, to take you to another place. And you celebrate each face and each person you get to hug and each bagel you get to eat. And all of that just creates this whole, if we will let it. You know, this is, this is where we're going with this. If we can clear away the unnecessary distractions and then if we can use the necessary distractions to remind us in ways that God is still here, then then 
we can gradually start to hear the rocks singing everywhere in our lives. Bubba's genius was being able to do exactly that, to be aware of the rocks, to hear the rocks singing. And why do I believe he could? Like I said, if you saw him smile, you would know that it was true right down to his socks, that he had found a place where he could celebrate life and be that most grateful guy in the room. So how will we know? How will we know if we're hearing the rock sing? Well, now we're back to Paul's threeness again. Our prayer, our prayers, our unceasing prayer, is only as real, only as unceasing as our sense of gratitude and well-being in those moments. Because you can only be happy and you can only be grateful at moments when you're hearing the rock sing. You get that? Do you see how that works? That's the definition of happiness, is hearing the rocks sing. The definition of happiness is being completely undivided, focused on one thing and one thing only, to the exclusion of everything else. We experience that as happiness. We experience that as well-being. We experience that as a warmth and a connectedness. And we experience it as gratitude. There's no other way. To hear the rock singing is to be grateful and well. And in order to hear the rock singing, we need to start clearing stuff away. How about taking this Lent and consciously and intentionally clear out some of the stuff, just a little at a time, something that you can do, and see if you can start to hear the rocks sing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 2,000 years of church tradition that we don't give much thought to, we don't even give much credence to anymore, but that it has provided us with these age-old and tested tools that we can use to find our way back home to you. Help us to use them as best we can. Help us to move past the resistance, the inertia, whatever's keeping us from being able to set aside some time to do something different than we normally do and see where it takes us. Father, we want to love you better and we don't know how to do it, but you've given us clues and a trail of breadcrumbs that we want to follow. So help us to see the need. Help us to start feeling the desire to do what we need to do to come home to you in a whole new way and find that new life that awaits us at Easter. Thank you for everything that you give us every moment. Thank you for never leaving or forsaking us. And thank you for keeping in the forefront of our minds that we can only love it all because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.